Our whole theme has been, as you see on the slide, church under construction. And this has not been about Paul coming to Corinth to try to build a church physically. We're talking about building up the church spiritually. It's been a spiritual work where no doubt a church was planted, believers were saved and brought in, but Paul has been continually pouring in and invested into the lives there to see that they are walking in the truth and maintaining that kind of obedient walk in the Lord and according to the word of God. And Paul is getting ready now to come a third time to Corinth and he's worried that things are not going to be in order as they should be. It's kind of like when, you know, you go away, my, my wife and I went away recently and you know, you kind of get ready to come back home and you're worried thinking, what's my house gonna be like? What's the state of my home? Is there gonna be dishes piled up? Is there gonna be garbages overflowing? Are all the plants in the garden gonna be just dead and desolate? Like, what are we gonna be facing when we come Come back, right? And that's kind of Paul's attitude. What is he going to be dealing with when he arrives back in Corinth? And it's interesting that chapter 12 started in the heavens. Paul re reciting, recounting the, the visit he had to the third heavens, but then it ends in chapter 12 with the realities of a sinful world, a world in chaos. And, and in fact, the last verse in chapter 12 what does Paul say? He says, lest when I come again, my God will humble me among you and I shall mourn for many who have sinned before and have not repented of the uncleanness, fornication and lewdness which they have practiced. So Paul's wanting to be sure that these are individuals that have indeed repented, that are walking in truth and in accordance to the word of God. Paul's ready to step into that potential condition where he arrives in Corinth and he's gonna see things the opposite. So he wants, warns and pleads with the believers to be sure that they're walking rightly with God. So Paul reminds them, hey guys, verse one, this will be the third time I'm coming to you. By the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word shall be established. Paul has been, again, pouring into these believers at Corinth. He's had a concern for their spiritual health. He's ready to go a third time. Paul's invested into these people. He's ready to make that trek again. But this is not expected to be a very cozy and comfortable visit. Paul's going to be coming with some heat because of the situation that's been unfolding in Corinth. It's kind of like as a kid when you were, you know, at home with mom and dad's away at work and you're acting up and, you know, you kind of cross that line and suddenly your mom's like, that's it, I've had enough. Wait till your dad gets home. And you are instantly like, oh no, I've gone too far. I've crossed, I didn't mean to do that. I've gone too far. And you're just dreading your dad coming. You're like praying, Lord, let there be rush hour traffic. Let him have to stay late. Let me be in bed before he gets home. You're just like praying, Lord, help me here in this situation, right? But you're fearing that. That's kind of the situation here. Paul has been seeing things taking place in the church that's not good. There's been some that have crossed the line and he needs to come now and, and, and deal with these things. People have, have succumbed to sin. They succumbed to the uh, false apostles, the lies and the deceptions that they've been you know, feeding into the church. Paul's been questioned, he's been challenged and now it's time to come and, and put things in, in order. As Paul says, this is gonna be the third time he comes to them. He's, been there the first time, his first visit, he planted the church and he spent a year and a half with them. And then he, he wrote 1 Corinthians, a letter to them again, further instruction. But then in between 1 and 2 Corinthians, he comes again, a second visit to them. And it was a, a painful visit, as the word says. It was a visit that he, again, he had to bring correction and he had to, you know, really speak into their lives in a way that, again, had to deal with sin and confront some things. It was a hard visit. 
Then he wrote 2 Corinthians as we're studying through, and now he's getting ready to come a third time. Paul's investing these guys. He's not, he's not just kind of you know, moving on from them. He is pouring into them because he wants to see these people experiencing the abundant, blessed life that is theirs in Christ as you walk in obedience to him. So he's seeing his need to come and exercise now some authority to them as he comes again. And that's why he says, by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word shall be established. Now, why does Paul, Paul's quoting from Deuteronomy 19, 15 here. It's a verse quoted elsewhere in scripture. But why is Paul using that verse here? Now, some believe, first of all, that he may be referring to his third visit and that as time people listen to him as he comes to lay down the law and, and, and you know, bring some, some counsel and correction. And it's his third visit that's now like acting like that third witness because he's come three times. That's what some people maybe think is, is happening. That doesn't really seem to mesh with the scripture because it's still just one person, one voice. It's not a, a threefold witness by three different people. So that doesn't seem to really fit. Some believe that Paul is referring to his associates, his travel companions like Titus, who's mentioned in chapter eight, verse 23, that when Paul comes, he's not just coming on his own volition or, or word, it's it being backed by other people as well as, as solid truth. Thirdly, it could be referring to the witness of the church in Corinth, that everything Paul's gonna reveal is gonna be backed by the church there. And possibly, it could be that Paul's speaking this for the false apostles reference, that their accusations against Paul aren't really holding any water because it hasn't had a, a two or threefold witness or, or backing by it. They're just kind of speaking what they want without really having a proper witness. Now, regardless of the purpose for Paul quoting this verse, Paul is establishing that he's gonna be coming in authority, that he's not gonna be just speaking on his own. There's gonna be a, a witness. And then also that no accusation or criticism against him can really hold any water unless properly proven by a witness. Remember what Proverbs 18 verse 17 says, that the first one to plead his cause seems right until his neighbor comes and examines him. And you've all been in that situation where you've had somebody come and report something to you and you're like, oh my goodness, I can't believe that person ha has done that to you. And, and that, it just sounds so awful. And, and you listen to this story and you're like so compassionate. And then you talk to the other person that they're talking about. And then you hear the other side of the story and you're like, oh, there were some details left out here in this account. And that's why I needed to hear this and examine that properly. It's, it's important that we hear a proper, you know, kind of accounting and witness and that you're hearing it from multiple people. Now, thankfully, we know that we have a, a solid threefold witness of what's dependable and true because we have the witness of the Trinity. It says in 1 John chapter 5 or 6 to 7 that this is he who comes by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not only by water, but by water and blood. And it is the Spirit who bears witness because the Spirit is truth. For there are three that bear witness in heaven, the Father, the Word, which is Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit. And these three are one. You see, the very Trinity is forming for us a solid witness uh, of what is true and dependable. And because of that threefold witness, Every word now of God is established. The word of God is dependable. Psalm 119 verse 89 says, forever, O Lord, your word is settled in heaven. Aren't you glad for that? Now, Paul goes on to say in verse two, 
I've told you before and foretell as if I were present the second time. And now being absent, I write to those who have sinned before and to all the rest that if I come again, I will not spare since you seek a proof of Christ speaking in me, who is not weak towards you, but mighty in you. So bringing correction and truth is really nothing new for the Corinthian church. They've, they've heard this before from Paul. He's been there, he's, he's visited them, he's written to them, he's shared these things with them, this is nothing new. And Paul's not you know, saying, listen, I, I, I've kind of changed my tune now with you. Time has caused me to sort of forget these things or just overlook it. No, he's realizing that I'm not gonna be saying anything different to you than what I haven't already shared with you. I've shared it with you before. And in fact, this time around, Paul says, now because I'm coming a third time, with much the same stuff. This time, he says, I will not spare at the end of verse two. I will not spare. See, this church has appreciated Paul's grace. He's come with gentleness and love to feed them and to nurture them and to bring them to maturity, but they've kind of abused that grace. Paul would much rather come in a gentle way, in a, in a loving and kind way, but, and that, that's the way it would have been on this trip if they had accepted that word and, and responded in obedience, but now Paul is gonna need to come in a much stronger way to make things right. It's like daddy's coming home and there's a spiritual spanking that needs to be doled out here. That's kind of Paul's attitude. And we're not talking about Paul coming in an aggressive, abusive way. No, no doubt about that. We're not saying that. We're talking about Paul coming in a, in a disciplinary way, which is always to be carried out in love, right? just as God chastens those whom he loves. Paul's coming with love to bring discipline, to deal with sin. You see, if a sickness can't be dealt with through medicine that a doctor might prescribe to you, sometimes the doctor needs to put you under the knife and bring surgery to bring about a remedy for what ails you. And that's kind of what Paul's saying. Listen, I would have loved for you to have responded in a more gentle way, but now it's time to kind of go on a knife. It might be a little bit painful, but I'm not gonna spare anyone. I'm gonna come in a way, and what's in, in that way. And what's ironic is that the false apostles that have crept in the church here in Corinth were basically accusing Paul of being weak, of not exercising strength or authority. They've kind of said, you guys in the church of Corinth, you need to just dismiss Paul. You need to forget about Paul because he's weak. He, he's just kind of like all these bad things are happening to him. He can't really be trusted. He's not really a true apostle by the way he conducts himself. And yet Paul's saying, you want to see apostolic authority? I'm going to bring you some apostolic authority and you're going to wish you never wanted to see apostolic authority. That's kind of what the attitude of Paul is coming in. It's ironic that this is what they're blaming Paul or accusing Paul of lacking in, and yet this is how he's gonna come. See, what's sad is that the false apostles in Corinth were really mistaking meekness for weakness. We've talked about that in the past. Paul was a guy like Jesus who exercised meekness, but too many people mistook that for weakness, that they needed to, you know, up their game a little bit. Look at what Paul says in verse four. He says, for though he was crucified in weakness, yet he lives by the power of God, speaking of Jesus. For we also are weak in Christ, but we shall live with him by the power of God toward you. So Paul brings up the example of Jesus. You see, Jesus's crucifixion may have seemed like a very weak act to just the average eye or the average Joe. People could have looked at that and said, hey, I thought this was supposed to be the, 
the Messiah, the deliverer of Israel. This is supposed to be the son of God. And yet here he is succumbing to uh, a beating and whipping and torture. And now he's placed on a cross and he's dying on a cross. That doesn't seem like the Messiah, the deliverer of the world. That seems very weak actually. And yet we understand in God's economy that glory always proceeds out of suffering. That as Jesus suffered, it was not the end because we know he died but rose again three days later. And he rose again through the power of God and defeated sin, death, the grave, and Satan. And he reigns with, with God at the right hand where he is ruling and reigning today in power. What was seen as weakness was actually the strength of God in accomplishing exactly what needed to be accomplished. So Paul knows that to be weak in Jesus now as he says, though we are also weak in him, we shall live with him by the power of God toward you. Paul knows that to be weak in Jesus means to really just lay down our own power for a greater and more godly power. He says, I'm not gonna be dependent upon what I can bring to the table or what I can accomplish, no. If it's me that I'm trusting in, I'm gonna actually fail. But I'm gonna lay down my power, I'm gonna lay down my way, and I'm gonna exercise God's way because then that's where the real strength is. When I'm dependent on God, when I'm leaning on the Father, when I'm trusting in Him to do His work, that's where the real strength is seen. So though I can lay myself down, which might seem weak to some, it's actually the strength of God that is seen. Paul said as much in chapter 12 verse 10 that when he is weak, then he is strong. It seems like an oxymoron. How does that work? It's a paradox. When he's weak, meaning when I'm not trusting in myself, but trusting the Lord, then I'm really strong. So though Paul is laying his life down, which like I said, may seem weak to others, he's really living in the power of God. And it's the power of God that's gonna be on display when he comes and arrives in Corinth and he begins to put things in proper place and bring about that correction that is needed. And so Paul says in verse five, it's an important verse. It says, examine yourselves as to whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not know yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you unless you, or unless indeed you are disqualified? You see, a lot of people were taking a lot of time to examine Paul. And they're trying to evaluate Paul and go, this guy doesn't really line up as a true apostle. Can't really trust him. They're saying lots of nasty things about him. But Paul turns around and says, hey guys, Instead of examining me, why don't you take some time and examine yourselves? These believers in Corinth need to look inside their own hearts to see what they were truly standing for and, and living for. And in fact, I know I myself can be a very good examiner of other people. I can look at other people and see the sin, all the wrong, all the things that need correcting in people's lives. In fact, Right here in the front row, I need to just address a couple things here. That maybe you haven't, oh, oh those are my keys, okay, yeah. Okay, you, okay, I will, I'll leave that, I'll leave that alone. Okay, she's got my keys. I don't know how you got my keys, but you got my keys, okay. Um, but yeah, we can, we can easily look at the faults on the people and fail to spend time to say, Lord, what about my heart? And in fact, that's what the word of God instructs us to do. Oftentimes we read in Psalm 26 verse two, examine me, O Lord, and prove me. Try my mind and my heart. What's really going on 
inside me. Psalm 139, verse 23 is much the same. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxieties. Lord, what's really taking place in me and in my heart? Socrates said, the unexamined life is not worth living. I don't know if I'd go that far, but I mean, take that up with Socrates if you want. But you see, a lot of people feel like I'm all good. Everything's straight and, and going just right where it needs to be because, you know, I, I grew up in the church. I'm solid in my faith. Uh, I've been at church all my life. Everything's great. Listen, going to church doesn't save you. Reading your Bible doesn't make you a Christian. You could have the biggest extensive Gaither DVD collection and it doesn't guarantee you're going to heaven. I hit a soft spot, didn't it, for some of you? They're like, don't mess with the Gaithers. Okay, sorry. But you see, a lot of people can place a lot of emphasis on external things that they think is making them right with the Lord and saving them and bringing about that assurance of salvation. But have you truly examined yourself as to what's going on inside? Now, what exactly are we examining? Are we examining whether, again, we're being a, a good person, doing enough to be saved? No. We're not examining those things. We're examining, as Paul says, whether you are what? In the faith. That's what we examine. Are you in the faith? Now, what does it mean to be in the faith? I know what it means to be in trouble. I've been in debt. I've been in love. I, I am still in love, I should say. <laughs> I know what that's like. But to be in the faith, well, we know that faith is not just, you know, faith in faith. Pastor Dale talked about this last week. It's, it's faith in a person. Jesus is the object of our faith. So to be in the faith then would be equivalent to saying, I'm in Christ. My faith is in a person, Jesus Christ, as the means of my salvation. So the question is then, are you in Christ? Have you put on the Lord Jesus Christ as the means of your salvation. Because a lot of people, they have a concept of Jesus. Oh, they even believe that Jesus came to this world, died on a cross and rose again. But they have failed to see their own personal need for Jesus. And they have failed to personally appropriate that to themselves to say, Jesus, I recognize I'm a sinner separated from God because of my sin. I need to repent of my sin and turn to you. And I need to put on Jesus Christ. There are a lot of people that believe in how the concept of Jesus, but have never appropriated that to themselves to where they put on Jesus as the means of their salvation and forgiveness of sins. Now, to be in the faith means that you put your reliance in Jesus as the one that's, that, that forgives you, of the one that, that makes you new and grants that free gift of eternal life. Now, someone may wonder, how can I know if I'm really in the faith? How can I know that I'm really in Christ and in the faith? If you're in the faith, then, then fruit is going to naturally follow. It's gonna be a natural byproduct of that faith. And the word of God shows us some evidence of whether or not you are in the faith and thus in Christ. First of all, we see that the Holy Spirit bears witness of this new relationship. Romans 8 Verse 9 and 10 says, But you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, 
He's not his. And if Christ is in you, the body's dead because of sin, but the spirit is life because of righteousness. Goes on to say in verse 14, for as many as are led by the spirit of God, these are sons of God. For you do not receive the spirit of adoption again to fear or the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you receive the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. And the spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are indeed children of God. So understand that when you commit your life to Jesus, when you call it to Jesus, to be saved and forgive you of your sin. The Holy Spirit now is dwelling in us and brings us into a new reconciled relationship with the Father, by which we're no longer now in fear or running from God, but we recognize now as children of God, we get to cry out Abba Father, which is a title of a son to a father, a, a, a term of love. It's like saying, Daddy, have a father we get to crowd. There's a new relationship now that the Holy Spirit in us is bringing to mind and is bringing that confirmation and witness that we are now children of God and we have a new reconciled relationship with the Father. Praise the Lord for that. Secondly, I didn't put up those verses for you, sorry. Secondly, you have a new love for God's family as we're children of God. Reconciled relationship with the Father, we now have been brought into an extended family. And there's a new love now for one another. Being a child of God means that you have a new family and an indicator that you are in the faith and thus in Christ is that you love the brethren. First John 3, 14 says, we know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. He who does not love his brother abides in death. That's pretty strong. But you see, this is now a love that's supernatural. This is not a natural love that we just kind of have many of you before you're saved you're like i don't want to go and hang out with those people i don't want anything to do with those people you would never have caught yourself sitting in a service like this on a sunday morning but now that you're saved and you're reconciled to the fall you have a new relationship suddenly you're like man i love these people i barely know this person beside them beside me but i just love them we're brothers and sisters in the lord and there's a love, a supernatural love now for one another. Isn't it great when you go somewhere and you meet a fellow Christian? You're just like instantly bonded. You're like, all right. And there's just a love now for one another. And thirdly, you have a new desire to do what's right. See, before coming to Christ, I mean, you did whatever you wanted. And, and, and for the most part, you did it without any kind of guilt. There's no, there's no conviction. There's no shame. You just did what you wanted without thinking twice about it. But now that you're in the faith, you're desiring to pursue righteousness and holiness. There's a conviction over sin. You do something that is not in line with the Heavenly Father and suddenly there's this feeling of like, man, I don't wanna do that against a loving, gracious God who has saved me. First John 2 verse 29 says, if you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who practices righteousness is born of him. 1 John 3, 9, whoever has been born of God does not sin for his seed remains in him and he cannot sin because he's been born of God. Now, some of you are looking at that verse and going, uh-oh, we got a problem here. Because I thought I was in the faith, but I sin. I mess up. Now, please understand that John, when he's writing this epistle, and he alludes to this a lot, he's not talking about falling into sin or, 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 or messing up crossing the line. He's talking about living in habitual sin exercising a pattern of sin by which there's just no conviction because what he's saying is that anybody that continues on in that really shows that they've not really been born again. 
that the Spirit is not in him because when the Spirit is in you, there's a, a conviction over sin. So please don't misunderstand that and think, I don't think I'm saved. And I, I, I talk to some people that fear that they're not saved because they've messed up. I'm like, you've messed up? Join the club. Again, heaven is not filled with perfect people. It's filled with saved and redeemed, forgiven people. And so now that we're saved, an evidence is gonna be, I don't wanna continue in my sin. I don't wanna have a lifestyle or a, a practice of sin. I don't wanna continue on in those things. Number four, an evidence is that you're lo no longer living according to the world. See, now there's new priorities in your life, new pursuits. There's no longer an appetite for the things that the world promotes or, or lives for. And by the world, we're talking about that system that's in opposition to God. There's now the ability to overcome these things that perhaps once held us captive. Because Ephesians 2 says that while we we're dead in trespass, we were kind of walking according to the, the course of this world or the pattern of this world. We're just like zombies walking along because we didn't know any better. But now that we're saved, we're like going, I'm not living by the world's standards or according to the world. First John 5, 4 says that whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world. What is it? Our faith, guys. It's our faith in Jesus, our dependency on Jesus. We now overcome the world. It's been said that any dead fish can swim downstream, right? Any dead fish can swim downstream. We're no longer now walking according to the course of this world, just going with the flow being caught up in the current. No, we're swimming upstream and we're going against the current and the flow of this world. And we're overcomers of that through our new life in Christ. Lastly, you have a hunger for the word of God. First Peter 2, verse two to three says, as newborn babes desire the pure milk of the word that you may grow thereby if indeed you have tasted the Lord is gracious. You know what that was like before you put your faith in Jesus. You would open up the word of God and you would begin to look at scripture and you'd be like, this is like written in a different language. I, I don't understand this. I'm not getting anything out of that. And suddenly you got saved and you're born again and you open up scripture. And you're like, whoa, it's like you were given special glasses to read, you know, the word. You're like going, this is suddenly coming alive. It's like angels are singing and there's like just a light show. You're just like going, this is fantastic. This is amazing. And you're eating it up because now there's, Again, that, that newness of life, and it's the living word of God that's now resonating with you. And you can all attest to that because here you are sitting here together on a Sunday morning, eating up the word of God. I mean, we've got not a whole lot else for you, right? I mean, we got decent coffee, but you're not here for the coffee. Uh, we got decent fellowship. It's great. We got a pretty good worship team, but we know it's not those things. It's the word of God that we're just going, man, I want more of that. I want to grow in the Lord. There's a, a hunger for these things now that, again, is a byproduct of being born again. Now, let me just clarify here again. These things here, and again, these are just a sample. There, there's more that you could pull out of the Word of God. This is not an exhaustive list. But I want you to understand, these things do not save you. Please don't look at that list and go, oh my goodness, I'm really falling short here. I don't know if I'm saved. I gotta go home and I gotta really put these into practice this week to, to make sure I have an assurance that I'm saved. These things don't save you. These things become the evidence or the outflow of a saved life. You are saved simply by repenting of your sin and putting your trust in Jesus who has done it all for you on the cross. 
He's paid the penalty for your sin. He's brought forgiveness. The question is, have you reached out and now appropriate that to your life? Have you admitted your sin and said, Jesus, yes, I need your forgiveness. I need your salvation. I'm gonna put on Jesus Christ so that I may be in the faith. That's what saves you. And if you wanna know if you're saved, well, this is gonna be what's gonna be the, the outcome of that here. So test yourself by these things. Lest, as Paul says, lest you be disqualified, which means to fail the test. Listen, I failed a lot of tests in my day. I don't know about you. I don't like tests. But this is a test I'm happy to take. It's a test I don't want to fail. Now listen, here's the great thing. We're not talking about perfection here. We're not talking about making it to heaven because you're perfect. We're talking about progression. Is there fruit that's growing in your life? Is there a progression happening in your life by which you are continually being transformed into the image of Jesus Christ and being made more like him and living that out in your life? Paul ends by saying, I trust in verse six, I trust that you will know that we are not disqualified. Paul hopes that as they examine themselves, they will see that they are in the faith and that this is a further proof now of Paul's apostleship. Because if they're looking at their lives and going, yep, we're good, we're saved, well, they got saved by hearing the gospel, which Paul preached to them. And if Paul's disqualified, then they need to examine themselves and go, are we really saved then? But examining themselves brings about further proof that Paul is a true apostle. There's no reason for him to be questioned or disqualified. And my prayer and hope for us as I close and worship team, would you come up? My prayer and hope for each and every one of us is that we pass the test. How do you know if you pass the test? Examine yourselves. Test yourselves. Is there fruit in your life? Is there an indication that you are in Christ? Listen, I, I say this not to scare you. I, I say this so that you can rest in assurance that you are indeed in the faith and saved and, and in Christ. I don't want to make salvation a difficult thing. I don't want you to walk away and there's so many people I know that wrestle with that assurance of salvation because they're basing things too much on, on works. Jesus did the work for you. It's done, it's finished, he says on the cross. The question is, are you in Christ? Are you put on Christ? That's it. Have you put your faith in him? Are you in the faith today? A couple application points from this what we looked at here today, first of all, God's witness is true and dependable. Are we upholding a true witness by what we say in here? Do we jump on gossip or lean on hearsay or do we allow a matter to be established in truth? Secondly, have you truly examined yourself as to whether you're in the faith? Is your life now lived in Christ and through Christ? Is there evidence of a transformed life? Are you walking in a personal relationship with Jesus? I hope that you can say yes to that today. And if you can't say yes to that today, if you're sitting here today or watching online and you're wrestling with, I don't know. If I'm saying, I don't know if I, if when I die that I'll be going to heaven. I wanna hope so, but I don't have a full confidence and assurance. Every believer in Christ should have an absolute 100% confidence and assurance that you're going to heaven when you die. The only reason you don't have an assurance is because you put too much emphasis on yourself and your works. But when you put the emphasis on what Christ has done for you and you 
solely cling to his work and you've applied that to yourself and put on Christ, you too can have a confidence. You're going to heaven when you die. But if you don't have that assurance today, here's what you need to do. First of all, you need to simply acknowledge your sin. You need to admit that you're a sinner in need of saving. You need to repent to that. You need to turn away from it and turn to Jesus and put your trust in him. And then you need to receive what he's already freely given you, and that is newness of life, forgiveness of sins, and the reward of eternal life in heaven with him. Admit, believe, and simply receive it. That's it. It's not complicated. And if you've never done that and you don't have that assurance today, I encourage you right where you are to pray. Pray a simple prayer like this. Lord, I admit I'm a sinner and I'm in need of saving and I thank you that you've done the work. You died on a cross and you rose again to pay the penalty for my sin. I believe that today and I, I want to receive your free gift of salvation, newness of life, Make me new, and I want to live my life for you now. Come in and be my Lord and my Savior. If you pray a simple prayer like that, it's done. You're a child of God, born again, with the reward of eternal life. Receive that today. If you prayed that today for the first time, would you come and share that with me? If you're watching online, would you reach out to us at the church? Email us, because we'd love to follow up more with you on that. So Lord, we thank you for all that you've done. And Lord, help us to be those that truly do take time to examine ourselves and to see, God, are we in the faith? Are we just going through the motion? Are we just believing in something that's not really of you? Help us to examine, evaluate, test ourselves. But Lord, thank you that this is not a hard test. It just helps us to stay on track with you and in you. And so may we be those that rest in full confidence and assurance of the salvation you've given us. And we thank you for that. And we praise you, Jesus. We love you.